This morning is Sunday, August 28th. Our message this morning is going to be called Entangled in the Net. The word net in Hebrew has some multiple meanings. And uh, just so that you know, and then we'll, we'll get into actually what it is, but it's cherim. C-H-E-R-E-M. Cherim. And most of the time when this is used in the Scripture, it's used in a very figurative sense. In fact, it's not translated net 90% of the time. I'm going to show you how it is translated. Turn with me to Joshua 6. And then I'll tell you why I chose to use the less uh, common interpretation of that word. Y'all in Joshua 6 yet? Oh, somebody holla. I got a friend that I talked to on the phone, a guy that I work with, and when I call him and he sees my name on the phone, he goes, Holla! <laughs> like that, he's, I don't know, he's funny. Apparently, it's not as funny to y'all as I thought it would be. Y'all in Joshua 6? Yes. Somebody holla? Yes. Okay. I want to share something with you as I was thinking in worship this morning. Repentance is something that we talk about a lot. In fact, I've preached about it a lot lately. You remember what the Hebrew word for repentance is? Teshuvah. Do you know when a little kid says, I'm sorry? You know, the first time they learn, I'm sorry, it's like, man, it, this is the open sesame. It's the magic words, you know? It's, it's like an incantation that immediately brings forgiveness. But you can wear out an I'm sorry, can't you? In fact, I've got a little one that at times will say, I'm sorry, so quickly after he did it that it was almost a preemptive, I'm sorry. It's more of a, I'm sorry for what I'm about to do. <laughs> Which kind of doesn't indicate real sorrow, does it? Right? Well, sometimes repentance is much that way. We get so used to saying, you know, I repent, Lord, I'm sorry. And the reality is there's no brokenness over it. There's no real intent not to do what you're doing. It's kind of like, I'm sorry I'm in this position, but I'm not going to do much about it. In fact, it'd be kind of like being on Interstate 10, right? We'll say Interstate 10 in Houston, okay? And your goal, your destination is L.A. That's where Interstate 10 ends up on the West Coast, right? That's your goal. That's where you were told to go. That's your direction, that's where the master of the trip said you need to head. And you're driving and the interstate looks familiar and you kind of like it, headed towards Louisiana. And somewhere along the way, you go, you know, I don't know if this is the right way to L.A. In fact, it's not. But this stretch of road is often familiar. I kind of like it. You can say that you repent and that you really want to go to L.A., but until you turn that car around... You're just headed for the wrong ocean, my friends. Atlantic Ocean. And if you stay that direction long enough, headed that way long enough, not only will you not reach your destination, you end up farther from it than you were when you began the journey. Repentance is a lot like that. God will not be mocked. Okay? And I'm not trying to bring the heavy heat of the pulpit upon you. But don't pacify your conscience with the idea that you can just say, I repent, and it's a done deal. There was a man that had a wicked thought in his heart in the book of Acts. He wanted to buy the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And Peter looked at him and said, 
said, pray and perhaps God will forgive you for having such a wicked thought in your heart. Perhaps. Now, I'm not telling you today that God's not a God of mercy. Y'all know one of my favorite passages in all of the Scriptures, James 2.13, that His mercy triumphs over His judgment. But He's also not a fool. In fact, Matthew and I were reading the other day about a, a student of theology. And he came to his pastor and said, you know, I have some questions about this. Tap in his Bible. Didn't understand something. And the old professor smiled at him and said, well, son, I think I have the answer. You must permit God to know a few things that you don't know yet. You know, and he turned around and walked off. There are times we don't understand what's going on. You don't, you don't grasp the big picture. Our job is to be obedient. And if you're in a position where you feel the Lord tugging you to repent and you don't do it, don't be mocked. I mean, don't be, don't be an idiot about this. God will not be mocked. Obedience is required for salvation. The first chapter of Romans says that we are supposed to call Gentiles, Paul called Gentiles, to the obedience that comes from faith. Obedience and faith go together. And we don't have one, you don't have the other. You all understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we spend so much time saying that I love the Lord and He loves me and He's in me and there's no condemnation and we spend so much time building that side of our lives that you forget that God's a God to be feared too. God is a God with righteous standards that He requires righteousness of us. How many times would you let a man hit a woman and say he was sorry before you stepped in and stopped him because it was evident he wasn't really sorry? If Jennifer was in here right now and I palmed her across the face, that'd cause a reaction in you, wouldn't it? Be grievous. If I turned and said, I'm so sorry, baby, I will never do that again, I might get forgiveness, huh? You might even decide not to intervene. If I palm her across the face ten minutes later, you begin to question my sincerity, wouldn't you? And then again, fifteen minutes. How many times are you going to let that go on before you decide that although I'm saying the right words, my heart is not in the matter? You understand? God's not a fool. There are times in my life that I act as if God is a fool. I look right at Him and say, I'm sorry with no intention of stop doing the things that I'm doing. That has got to come to a stop. Friends, you've got to draw a line in the sand and say, I will stand with God and with no other. He's merciful. But there have been a few men in the Bible that found the limits of His mercy. You know, when a guy gets struck dead by an angel with a sword, he found the limit of God's mercy. We don't want to be that guy. The problem with us is that we find ourselves so much mercy that we abuse it. Because you didn't get struck dead the first time you lied to God, like Ananias and Sapphira did. See, that fear spread through the church in the book of Acts. People got saved. <laughs> but because that didn't happen to you the first time, it's easier to do it the next time. And pretty soon you delude yourself into thinking, I'm God's man of power for the hour, man. I can do what I want. This is how healing evangelists can start off taking a drink at a bar and end up full-blown drunks and still preach and not know there's anything wrong with their life. So somebody can stand at the in New Orleans in the French Quarter and call it the gates of hell and preach powerfully against it and himself be in horrible sin at that very moment. Sin is intoxicating. It will delude you. It will make you think you're all right when you're not. Go with me in Joshua 6. Okay, in Joshua 6, we have a very familiar story that I'm going to talk to you about and then I'm going to read you some out of chapter 7. 
in the sixth chapter of Joshua, whose name, by the way, Joshua, is another way to translate the word Yeshua. It means salvation or God's salvation, and it is Jesus' name. And in fact, Joshua in the Old Testament is a very good example. Somebody who in type portrays Jesus an awful lot. In fact, the first time he ever shows up in the Bible is to defeat the warlike Amalekites. Isn't that great? The reason that Jesus appeared, First John says, is to destroy the devil's work. So you see many parallels in their lives, is all I'm saying. But in the book of Joshua, in the sixth chapter, you have an angel show up who is the commander of the Lord's armies. And uh, Joshua says, hey man, you for me or you for my enemies? The guy says, neither. There's something you need to realize. Although you are bought by God as Joshua was, Joshua was an Israelite, redeemed by God, purchased by God, even circumcised wearing a sign on his flesh that he belonged to God. But that angel of the Lord's army said, neither. I'm not for you, I'm not for your enemy. But as commander of the Lord's army, I've now come. What on earth should you take away from that? You're bought by God. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You dance in excitement and say, I am one of God's children. I have His divinity even in me, in a manner of speaking. At least that's how Peter phrases it. I'm not preaching that you're God's. Please don't get off on a weird thing. But what I'm trying to tell you is, sometimes we focus on that and you forget. God is about God's purpose. God has a plan that He wants to bring about. You're a part of that plan, but it does not revolve around you. The reason that this commander of the Lord's army doesn't look at Joshua and say, hey man, I'm for you, is because not everything in Joshua's heart was to do what the Lord wanted him to do. He was like everybody else. He needed to be refined. You're going to find him complaining like a little girl here in just a little bit. Little girl. Little girl. So I got a little girl now, so I can't use that as an You'll find him complaining like some... Matt's got more little girls than I do. He said, it's okay, I can use that example. So, what I'm trying to get at here is that God is not for you in that sense. God is for His plan of salvation. He's for restoring the world. This is what the Bible says when it says He's not a respecter of persons. Have you ever wondered how He can not be a respecter of persons, but He can love you intensely? He can order your footsteps. You can be called according to His purpose. All of those things. What this basically means is when you are for Him, He's for you. But when you step out of obedience, when you step out of His plan in your life, He doesn't honor that and anoint that. In His mercy, He may bring you back, but He does not honor your sin because He's a holy God and He can't. So when Joshua 6, this guy shows up, they have this conversation. And do you remember what Joshua 6 is about? It's about the fall of the kingdom of Jericho, right? This kingdom of Jericho represented the stronghold of the world. Because God, while these people were on one side of the Jordan, said, you're going to go to the other side of the Jordan and I'm going to give you all of that land. But something stood in the way. And it was this kingdom of Jericho and it was fortified. It had a wall around it and these people were warlike. In fact, the first time Israel got here, they said... Don't think we want to do this, God. Appreciate you getting us out of Egypt and all of that, but, you know, we'd rather hang out in the desert for another 40 years, okay? Well, now they're here the second time. They're facing this giant that has beaten them before, in a manner of speaking, right? And God says, hey, I want you to march around this city six times. You remember this story, Judah? And the priests are going to go with their shofars. Your Bible says trumpet. It's a shofar, like that one on the wall. 
Isn't that neat? A shofar is a ram's horn. Jesus is called the king of the sheep, the ram. When a priest blows through that shofar, the spirit that God has given him is being sounded out and it's like the king of the sheep we're speaking to everybody. So these priests go ahead of the nation of Israel. They march around the city one day. And at the end of the day, the priests blow the shofar. The priests are way out front and then all the people are walking silently behind. They do that for six days. Do you know every thousand years, whether we're talking about the first thousand years, second thousand, fourth, fifth, right on up to Jesus, Jesus would be the fourth person, there's been a really special man of God every thousand years that has caused something major in the world to change. We'll teach on that some other time. But in any way, this sixth chapter is about these six times they're going around Jericho. And what did they do on the seventh time? On the seventh time, they marched around seven times. This is to indicate in God's plan, while these priests are on display before the world as the people of God are marching around the kingdoms of the earth on display, not saying anything except what the king of the sheep tells them to say, things would intensify. When we get to the end of the, the, the matter, when we get to the end times, the end days, the witness would intensify. They're going to march around it seven times on the seventh day. And then not only are the priests, but every human being in Israel will give a war cry and a shout. They'll blow the trumpet. They'll shout to God. And what happened? The kingdom of Jericho, which is synonymous with the kingdom of the world in this type, the walls fall and every man goes straight in. There's a beautiful shadow and type there. That shadow and type is like King Jesus leading His people around the kingdoms of the world. They only speak when He says to speak. And when they speak, they do it with the authority of the king of the sheep. They blow His breath through His authority. A horn is authority in the Bible. And it's a witness to the world. And that after this occurs for a certain number of days and continues to intensify, the kingdom of the world's stronghold falls and becomes the kingdom of God. That's, the Bible teaches this, and this is it in a microcosm. Well, why am I going through all of that? Something was said in particular. God told the Israelites in this sixth chapter, everything that belongs in that city belongs to me. It's a devoted thing. Now, that word for a devoted thing has some really interesting meanings in the Bible. That is cherim, cherim. All right, that's what I told you at the title. Oops. C-H-E-R-E-M. Cherim. Devoted things. Here are some other meanings for it. It can also mean cursed. That's weird, huh? It can mean a dedicated thing or a thing dedicated to destruction. It can mean banned, like prohibited. And it can mean net, either figuratively or literally. I don't want to throw too much out here so that you don't begin to sew these pieces together. But basically what God said is everything in this city belongs to me to do with what I want to do with it. In fact, He was going to destroy it all. It had been banned or prohibited from the Israelites. It had been devoted to God. It had been placed in God's net, so to speak. Let's pick up in the seventh chapter. It says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Devoted things is the word that we're talking about here today. You're going to see it's translated several different ways. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things 
Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. First thing I want to point out is a real difference between Christians in the United States and people of faith in other countries. Did you hear that? It said Israel acted unfaithfully. That's the first line that I read you. Israel acted unfaithfully. And then what you hear is that a single individual within Israel was the one who did something that was unfaithful. Americans, we're so proud of ourselves. Our individualistic spirit has the idea that we can rise to achieve anything. We, if we need it, we'll build it bigger, stronger, better than anybody in the world. Each man's his own island. Other cultures of the world don't think like that. God called Israel to greatness. He called them as a nation to greatness. So when one of them was failing God in this matter, it was as if all of them were. Because as a collective unit, they were supposed to have done something for God. So what the one man did affects all of Israel. When we sin, we tend to think, oh, well, it's my life. I can do what I want with it. You never heard somebody say that? I've looked at people before and said, man, look what's going on. You're tearing your family apart. It's my life. Your life is never just your own. You're called to be a part of the people of God. Your sin affects everybody that is around you. It immediately shows up in your families. Immediately. If I'm an abusive father, you'll see it in my children. If I'm an abusive man, you'll even see it all the way down to my pets. You ever been around somebody that their dogs cowered when they walked by? wonder why that is. You know? A good friend of mine had one that was abused that he rescued from a shelter. Known him now 15 years. And that dog, I still can't get close to because somebody abused it. Your sin is never limited to just affecting you. Even if it's private. Even if nobody knows about it, it will surface in some way. So Achan took some of the devoted things. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethlehem, and told them, Go up and spy out that region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the people, for there are only a few men there. So about 3,000 men went up. Hold your finger there and stop reading for a minute. They had just faced down Jericho, the mightiest kingdom in the area, with fortified walls. Did they do it with a sword? Not at all. Did they do it with superior military power? No, they did it by getting in God's plan and doing exactly what God said to do. Now they're facing a much smaller kingdom. The kingdom is so small, in fact, that although there's a couple million Israelites, they said... Let's just send a few thousand. I mean, this would be easy. We don't want to weary everybody. That seems like a good idea, right? I mean, Matt's been fighting all night. Why should we weary him? Let's send Judah. I mean, this is a tiny little kingdom. We won't have any problem. Judah, my son, I'm pointing to. We won't have any problem whipping him. Sometimes we sin and we think, you know, nobody knows about that. It's a private matter. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. When God looks at things differently than we do. You know, as a church, we're a collective unit. If my life is not going well, if I need to teshuba, if I need to repent, I'm headed towards the Atlantic Ocean and I should be headed towards the Pacific Ocean. Eventually, it'll affect your lives if you stay as a part of this church. How many pastors have fallen 
done shameful things with their secretaries only to leave broken lives behind them. But that's because they're leaders, right? That's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. How about the man's wife he took? Sin never affects just you. Watch what happens to these people. About 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, whom killed, who, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord remaining there till evening. He goes on to whine and talk about, oh God, why would you ever bring us out of Egypt? If we're going to get here and the little kingdom of Ai is going to whip us, why, why are we even on this race? And look what God tells him in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up! What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated My covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction." I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Those words for devoted is the same word as liable. Well, why did they choose to translate it liable? Why doesn't it say you've become devoted to destruction? See this verse here? It's verse 12. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Why didn't it say devoted to destruction or set apart for destruction? Let me read to you a definition of liable real quick. It says, at risk of, at risk of or subject to experiencing or suffering something unpleasant. At risk of. See, when God said that things were devoted to Him, it's the same word as was used right here. But when God speaks about something being devoted to Him, it's a done deal. It's His. It's supposed to be His. There is no risk or not risk. It's His. When He spoke of His people and why they were failing, He calls it liable. And the reason is, they were now at risk for the enemy because they were doing something that was outside of God's will. Think about liable in the sense that we use it in English. Why don't many of you have swimming pools in your backyard and those that do have fences? Why don't many people have trampolines anymore? Why is that? You're worried about being liable in many cases for somebody else being hurt on it. Am I the only one around here that's ever spent any time around lawyers? I know that's not true. You know what liable is. It's the reason that you can't walk into the mechanic section of the place that works on your car anymore. It's the reason that if you slip and fall outside of a store, they're worried that they're going to get sued. Because much of our actions are governed around not wanting to be liable, which means at risk for something. Anytime you are not doing what God told you to do, when God tells you to do it, you need to consider yourself liable. You're at risk. As long as my children are in my backyard playing where I told them to play, I know where they are. I know what they're doing. They're under Daddy's protection. But if they sneak out of the house in the middle of the night and are in my neighbor's yard and I don't know it because they're not where I said they should be, when I said they should be there, they're at much greater risk, aren't they? There is an enemy that is watching your life, that is looking for the opportunity to harm you. 
And what happens is, he's very smart. I know we talk about the devil as if he's some kind of dumb animal. Not so. The devil's smart enough that he has held the world captive. But because you didn't get burned the first time you stepped into your neighbor's yard when Daddy said, stay in your yard, you ran back, said, "Ah, I'm back in my yard. Wow, nothing happened. Then the next time you went a little further out, played for a little while, liked the grass on this side of the fence, then you went back and nothing happened. Now you're getting very used to headed the wrong direction. You're getting used to doing things God said not to do. promised Mandy I would talk to her about a seatbelt. Mandy writes these funny little stories. And they always have a very useful point. And I love it. They're great sermon illustrations. I could, if she'll write them down, I could preach for years on this. In my car, those of you that are familiar with my life know that I, I bought a car for the first time in a very long time. I've always had company vehicles and this is one that's mine. So it's, it's something that I like. It's important to me. My father's argued with me and said too important to me and he's probably right. So God's, God's appointed several little beings and beatings to lessen its value in my eyes. But when I get into this car, there is the most annoying thing in the world that happens. I hate it. When you don't buckle your seatbelt, it goes, and it never stops. There is no fuse that can be pulled. Not that I would consider doing that, but obviously I have. There is no way to disable it. That little buzzer, what's it for? It's to remind me to do what I'm supposed to do, right? A seatbelt. Is it, is it designed to make me unhappy? Is it designed to restrict my freedom? No, it's been designed in a way to encourage that I have freedom. What's it designed to do? Protect me. The manufacturer of that automobile put that in there to protect me and was so kind that they created a buzzer to remind me to do what I'm supposed to do. And do you know what I did? I buckled it so that it would go off behind my back. I even considered cutting it so that I could just plug the thing in on the other side. Why? What is wrong with me? Am I just some kind of inane fool? Don't you say that. What's wrong? It's for my good, right? I want to do what I want to do. Boy, boy, boy. Now, you may not have a voice that carries like mine, but I bet you've heard those words inside your head, haven't you? I want to do what I want to do. That's the voice of a sinful man wanting to be king of his own life. We serve a God who demands that He be the king of your life. You know what He's provided? It's not a little LED light that goes, eh, eh, eh. The Holy Spirit, His very presence is there with you and in you, reminding you, uh-uh-uh, don't do that. And that other voice rises up and says, I want to do it. He says, don't do that. And it gets easy to ignore it. In fact, you'll find little ways. A man has the most amazing thing that men and women can do. The most amazing thing is to justify whatever we want to do. You want a bass boat? you'll find a reason that you have to have a bass boat. I mean, all the disciples were fishermen. This will teach me about God's kingdom. I'll learn to fish. And God needs me to have a bass boat. Before long, you will find a way where you can't live without the bass boat. People tease me sometimes because I get a thought in my head. They'll watch it sit for a few days. And where it was once just a 
maybe. After a few days, it's, I have to and nobody will stop me. God puts His Spirit... I waited a year for that. God puts His Spirit in us like that seatbelt reminder because He wants to show you what is good for you. And we find ways to ignore Him. We make a full-time practice out of stiff-arming it and then going, oh, that's not really what God was trying to tell me. He didn't really tell me to be holy. He didn't really tell me to give my money to so-and-so. He didn't really tell me not to speak that way to somebody. You find a way to justify what you want because you want to do what you want to do. The problem with that is it doesn't just hurt you. It hurts everybody around you. I won't read the rest of this, but several times in this next chapter, the Bible says that because of Achan's sin, things happen. Because of Achan doing... Think about just what I have read you. The one man took something. You know what he took? A garment. You know what else he took? A little gold. So for a garment and a little gold that he buried in his tent, he buried in his tent. You know what the Bible says your tent is? It's your body. When you covet something, the Bible says he coveted those things. When you desire it, and God says no, and you take it and you bury it in your heart, and you justify the reasons that you need it, that you have to have it, it makes your life liable to destruction. It makes the enemy have a right to mess with you. It gives God a reason to allow you pain and loss so that you will turn from the direction you're in and go the right direction. And it's for your benefit so that you won't do that anymore. In the New Testament, the strangest thing happens. Paul says to turn somebody in a church over to Satan. What on earth? What kind of weird cultist teaching is that? Well, just because it's strange to you doesn't mean it's weird or cultish. It just means you need to read more of your Bible. The guy was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. And after the church had talked to him, he wouldn't repent. So the church stood up. Stood up. Can you imagine this? You would never come to my church again if I did this. We have done it. I've been a part of this three times now. Stood up and said, in the name of Jesus, we remove the covering that God has placed on your life of protection so that you can be taught not to sin. Two of the three times, the people were involved in sexual immorality and drug use. Something immediately happened in their life within a week that caused them to run back to the church. They didn't even know what we did. One time, a person was stoned out of their mind having sex with somebody that was not their husband in a room with multiple people and had a dramatic vision got up, ran out of that house, and came to the church. The church has real authority, real power. But here's the thing. You are the church. The church is not this building. It's you. And when you're supposed to be filled with power, you're supposed to be filled with the love of God, you're supposed to be trying with all of your heart to do what God called you to do, and you don't, it leaves the church in an awkward position. How many fingers on your hand can you remove before your hand doesn't work the way that it should? You might get by without a pinky. Can you get by without a thumb? Posable thumbs. <laughs> I'm teasing. But do you understand what I'm saying? Achan did something that caused 36 men to die. 36. I don't want to be responsible for anybody else being harmed. Now, 
when those thoughts are going through my head of what I would like to do and what I know God tells me to do or what I'd like to do and God says I can't do, you know where my very first thoughts go usually? It's no longer just to my life going, it's my life, I'll do what I want. Most of the time it's, man, if I end up out of God's will, it's going to hurt Judah and Gabriel and Abigail. I think about that. You know what else? I think about you constantly. What will it do in your lives if your pastor turns out to be a total failure? I can tell you what it does. It hurts people. I meet people today, everywhere that I go, that are still hurt over preachers screwing up 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Shouldn't be that way. But you know what? People are watching your lives too. It's important that we be holy. Well, why on earth did we call this entangled in a net? These same words that say, will make you liable, can also be translated to make you in a net. Now, it's net in a figurative sense, but think about that. How do you get in a net? The word is like a hunter's net. When you see or hear the word in Hebrew, Hebrew, cherim, it, it can be used as being entrapped in a net. What God is saying is when you do what I tell you not to do, it's like you're getting tangled up in a net. And the more you do what I tell you not to do, the more tangled in it you get. In fact, some of the more common ones in Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of those books that, friends, you need to read from beginning to end and try to avoid quoting things just out of the middle of it with out considering the entire context. And I say that because Solomon was a pretty confused guy at times. And I'm going to quote something out of the middle of it, but I need you to trust me. And if you don't trust me, then just go back and read the whole thing. You'll find out what I'm telling you is true. This is on page 744 in the Thompson chain. Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to be in verse 23, but something that you need to know. Achan... He didn't intend for 36 men to die. He didn't intend for anything bad to happen. He simply saw something that he wanted and could not deny himself that. That's how most sin happens. You don't intend to hurt anybody. You didn't intend to really mess up anything. You just saw something that you felt like you needed. Here's one that gets lots of people. Chapter 7 starting in verse 23. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Would you be surprised to find out that those words for snare and entrap are the exact same words that are translated accursed, banned, prohibited, or devoted to God? all depends on the context. When God said what Achan did made Israel accursed before God, liable before God, banned from God's presence, or ensnared in some way, He was speaking of this very exact kind of thing. Something that's alluring in men's lives. Solomon had a thousand women in his life. 
And speaking of an ungodly woman, he said that she could become a snare, an entrapment. How many men of God, if you just think about this century, how many men of God have you heard about that were doing very well in ministry, churches growing, people's lives changing and prospering, that because of an unhealthy desire for a woman who was not their wife, because if it is your wife, it's a healthy desire, have become entrapped and ensnared. Here's what you need to know about those words, too. It's like a hunter's net. In other words, the devil was just using somebody like a pawn. In Achan's life, he used a garment and gold to ensnare him and cause the death of people. In Solomon's life, he used love for a woman to ensnare him and entrap him so that Solomon sacrificed people in the temple of God. The place where Solomon sacrificed people, he set up idols to foreign gods. That place today is called the Hill of Unfaithfulness. Still there in Israel. Got a big sign by it. The United Nations built their building there. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know why, but they did. What I'm trying to tell you is this entrapment starts with a desire. You remember James said, each man... In fact... Keep your finger... Well, you don't have to keep your finger here. We'll read something else. Let me read you out of James. Read to you out of James. In James, it says, chapter 1, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It starts with a desire to be enticed to do something other than what God has told you to do. You know what's funny about Achan? Achan died because... And Achan's wife, children, and livestock all died. I forgot to mention that. Even the animals had to be killed. But he died because he wanted some gold that he took from conquering a town, right? You know when they conquered I, God said, hey, you can have it all. God's kind of like that seatbelt. He's not there to keep you from having fun or to keep you from being less free or any of those things. He's there to protect you. And there was something about Jericho that he didn't want him to have. And at I, if, if this guy had just waited for one more battle, he could have got some gold out of the deal. The point was not that God didn't want him to have gold. It was that God wanted him to be obedient to what He said. You know, I remember when I've met people that justified their sin. I've justified my own sin. But I've met people that just reasoned in the natural say, This is what people are supposed to do. It's how babies get here. Somebody recently told Mandy that, you know, some of the things that she was not engaging in because she wanted to be holy was stupid. It was like buying a car without test driving. That seems like a perfectly reasonable, natural thought, doesn't it? I mean, it's logical. Men and women are built certain ways and certain things are fun to do. That's not the point. God said He wanted obedience and that that was better than a sacrifice. Obedience. Now, you find out God's not against sex. I mean, there are worldwide churches today that prohibit marriage and teach 
sexual relations is if there's something bad. That's not at all what God said. He just wanted it to be done in a certain way. He said, boy, Eric, why are you harping on sex? Lord, you're making me uncomfortable. Because it's so prevalent. It's around us all of the time. It could be greed, like it was in Achan's case. It could be anything. The point is, the word Adonai, the word for Lord, what we call Jesus the Christ, means owner and controller. How long would you tolerate something that you owned and that you were supposed to control that didn't do what you said? You know? I can tell you what. I don't want to relate our relationships to animals, but I I got two dogs, right? When they don't do what I tell them to do, when I tell them to do it, friends, there is a swift and furious laying on of hands. And the healing warmth from my hand usually corrects their behavior. And if it doesn't at first, then I work at it until it does. Because they belong to me. Now, I don't think of kids that way. Some people do. But you understand the relationship. When you say He is your Lord, it means He has the right to do with you what He wants. And what insolence, what arrogance, what hypocrisy is it to say, He's my Lord? I want to do what I want to do. We don't have that right. So I'm encouraging you. Get right before God. In Micah... In the seventh chapter and second verse, there's this thing that Micah's crying out against. He says, man, everybody, there's nobody that's doing what's righteous. Each one, each one's feet are quick to run and ensnare or use a net to get his brother. That is the very same word that means devoted to destruction, accursed, banned. You, something that God says is banned that you can't touch, that you go touch, effectively bans you from God lest you're willing to repent. This is how, in the midst of all of the grace in the New Testament, in the midst of all of the things that say mercy triumphs over judgment, and I didn't come to condemn, I came to save, and all of those things, you still see verses like in Corinthians that says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Drunkards, sexually immoral, homosexuals, idolaters, revelers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were changed. You were washed. You were created anew. See, the Bible doesn't turn away anybody. Jesus hung around with people that were former whores. The key is they were former whores. Doesn't mean that they didn't struggle. Doesn't mean that they didn't fall down. But they were dedicated to getting it right. And when they found themselves headed the wrong direction, they turned around and headed the right direction. Perfection is what you're aiming for. It's not required. What's required is that you aim for it and that you strive for it. And you know what? God's not an idiot. He knows when you've made a treaty with sin, just allowed it in your life and buried it in your tent. And do you know how Achan was found out? Anybody know how Achan was found out? All of Israel lined up. All of the people of God lined up. And clan by, or tribe by tribe, then clan by clan, finally God said, that's the man. The Bible says that if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't fall under judgment. Corinthians 11 teaches us that if we would judge ourselves, you would not fall under judgment. You know what that means? The Bible says judgment begins with the house of God. So what does that mean? It means if you'll listen to the buzzer to put on your seatbelt... You won't ever have to worry about somebody condemning you. God or anybody else. You're getting it right as you go. You're making course corrections as you go. You're not waiting to the end to be caught in what you're doing. 
How many of you that have kids have experienced this? No, Daddy, I didn't do it. No, Daddy, I didn't do it. No, Daddy, I didn't do it. Only to catch them doing it. Do you get more punishment for that or less than when the kid comes up and says, I'm sorry, I did this? You know, one endears mercy. It entreats it. It asks for it. The other asks for something else. We need to get our lives right. God's so merciful. He gives you chances every day. And you know what? If you didn't do good yesterday, get it right today. Do good today. Thank God I hadn't cut that little buzzer out of my car. It reminds me to do good every day. <laughs> Which reminds me not to speed. Those that are listening on CD need to hear that. My son says, Dad also has a radar detector. Whatever man wants, he can justify. Yeah, it reminds me not to speed. Huh? <laughs> That's very good, son. Thank you. And, yeah, and I've justified it. Numbers 18 speaks of everything. Numbers 18:14. It's everything in Israel belonging to God. The word there is the same word that uses for caught in the devil's net or cursed under a curse. All of those things. What it literally means is something's been set apart for God. It can be set apart for good or it can be set apart for bad. We want to be in God's net. You remember the kingdom of God was like a net that was let down in the ocean? Caught all kinds of fish? But some escaped that net or got thrown out of it, didn't they? wonder why. We'll read that in Matthew some other time. Today I want to read you something else. In Second Peter, y'all call out a page number if you're in the Thompson chain when you get there. Second Peter, chapter 2. Thirteen fifty-three is the page number. Second Peter chapter two, verse nineteen. They promise freedom. These are these people not teaching right, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. You got that? A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. The Bible says that we're supposed to be slaves or bond servants to Jesus. We're supposed to be in a relationship with Jesus because of our love that makes us a slave to His will. But the Bible declares that you are a slave to whatever has mastered you. There is a difference between sinning and repenting and sinning to the point where it has mastery over your life. When you yield to something rather than Jesus, the Bible says that it masters you. And you can't have two masters. If they have escaped the corruption of the world, knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than the beginning. If they escape the corruption of the world and are again entangled in it. You know what that is? That is a man with a Hebrew background knowing that the word for a curse, the word for doomed or devoted for destruction is the same word as net. And he's thinking about people who have started this race with God, escaped the corruption of the world, and somehow found themselves entangled in a curse. Entangled in things devoted to destruction that they shouldn't be. And he says, and overcome by it. Friends, you can have one foot in a net and not be overcome by it. You just need to figure out how to get free. 
I'm not telling anybody in here that you're damned because you've sinned. No, we have an advocate. We have a way out. We have strength over it. But what I'm telling you is that if you stay in that net long enough and you struggle in that net long enough, you'll eventually get all four members of your body tied up in it and you will be overcome. That's what the Bible said in the book of James where it said when your desire drags you off and causes you to sin and sin's allowed to grow and it gets full-born, it births death. We cannot with our holy God dwell in things we're not supposed to dwell in. We can't. You will see at times in your life, at times in my life, you venture into areas that you shouldn't. You get curious about things you have no business knowing about. That's what got man into this problem in the first place. I wonder what that really the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. There are some things that we just need to say, Lord, I will do what you tell me to do, and that's it. Be blissfully ignorant about some things. You know that 80%, the highest figure is 80%, but people that do online polls where it's anonymous, of evangelical Christians, 80% of evangelical Christian men claim to look at pornography on the Internet once a week. That's a curiosity men are not allowed to have. That's something that will cause death and destruction in your life and the lives of people that are around you. Why do you think that people that never would go into a store and buy a magazine, that would never go outside of their home and actually commit some sin outwardly. They do that in the privacy of their home. They've buried something in their tent they're not allowed to have. It's in their heart and it will cause destruction. Left there long enough, it will grow to where you don't value women. Where you look at people differently than you should. You look at a piece of meat rather than a human being. That's not even to say about the support for an industry that is taking advantage of people and helping to enable them. There are things that you just can't allow. Things that you just can't be interested in because of God. Listen to this. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn their backs on the sacred command as it was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. The proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Farm animals, after they're cleaned, don't think anything about running right out and rolling in nasty stuff. But Christians that have been cleaned ought not resoil themselves. And if you do, Lord God, it ought to just be a toe. And you turn right around and you go wash it off never to return to it. But something's wrong with a Christian that gets washed from head to toe, and runs out and just rolls in every filthy thing, wallowing in it. He said, well, I could never... Friends, it happens. If you have not lived long enough yet to see somebody that sincerely loves the Lord get confused, dazed, and out of the kingdom, I hope to God you never see it, but chances are you will because the Bible says the love of most will grow cold. And only a few find the way of life. The love of most will grow cold. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through the holy apostles. 
First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. You don't want to be in that category, do you? I don't. Following your own evil desires. We are commanded to be led by the Spirit. In fact, Romans 6. When you leave here today, go read Romans, the sixth chapter. It says, wow, when we sin, there's grace. And isn't that a good feeling not to be condemned when you sin? You, there's grace there. God doesn't throw you away. But Paul says, so shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. We died to sin. And now we live to Christ. See, the fact that we do sin and get forgiveness for it is not a license for immorality. Jude speaks of people that are carnal, that aren't being led by their spirit who follow their mere natural instincts. Your natural instincts will take you to the Atlantic Ocean when God called you to the Pacific Ocean and you need to repent. He said, these men who divide you and follow their mere natural instincts, their condemnation is deserved. We don't live a life that is according to the flesh. You can't. And if you want to, you need to stimulate yourself towards wholesome thinking. You know what? When you're in the presence of worship and you feel the presence of God in here, most of you are not thinking about sin. But, if you go a little ways without sleep, maybe you drink a little bit, watch movies that are on the edge of freedom, you feed yourself enough things that are under the label of freedom and you will desire things that you shouldn't desire. There's something to be said for stimulating yourself to wholesome thinking. I only have a few minutes left, so I'm not going to read it to you. But I do want to tell you something. Temptation is a pretty common experience to human beings. And our batting average, it's not always admirable, is it? I was so offended one time I heard a preacher say, man, you have to pray that opportunity and temptation never meet because you'll choose to sin. Oh, I was mad. I thought, you carnal thing you you may do that I won't live a few years though and you find out people have different weaknesses the temptation he was talking about was not a temptation for me but there are others that I have to pray that opportunity and temptation don't meet you ever had a temper and you need that temper not to meet a moment of weakness or else you might act on it or any other kind of weird thing doesn't matter there's something to be said for staying in an attitude of worship Something to be said for staying in an environment that stimulates you towards wholesome thinking, like Peter said. Our experiences are a lot like Samson. Samson, there's a painting, let me say this. There's a painting. Solomon J. Solomon's the guy that painted it. And it shows an expression on Samson's face of utter surprise. You know when it is? You know, there were three times that Delilah told Samson, Hey, don't you love me? Look, what's the secret of your strength? Now, it didn't matter that he was strong. It didn't matter that he was with this foreign woman. God allowed those things. But God told him, I don't want you to ever tell anybody the secret of your strength. That's between you and me. So Samson lied to her. He says, You know, baby, if you tie me up with seven ropes, my strength will disappear and I'll be just like any other man. He's talking about something he shouldn't be talking about. 
this mighty man of God. Do you know why Samson was born? Samson was born to deliver Israel. Jesus came to deliver Israel. We are delivered by Jesus. He's like the supernatural Samson, if you will. Born to take the fight to the enemy and win. Samson says, uh, if you tie me up with seven ropes, I will be as weak as any other man. Wakes up the next morning, he's tied in seven ropes. That ought to have been a clue, huh? But see, he desired something so much that he stayed with her a second night. Wait, ropes like they were no problem. And after the seven ropes, he said, you know what, sweetie? I know I told you that, but look, if you tie me up with new ropes, new ropes, ropes that have never been used, I'll be as weak as any other man. Now, Samson falls asleep. She ties him up. Next morning, he's woken up by Philistine soldiers. He shakes him off, whips all the Philistines. You would think he'd be catching on, right? But Samson's intoxicated by something. His own desire is blinding him. And God's mercy is also blinding him. Because the first time he had done this, he had suffered severe loss. He wouldn't do it again. But the devil is just leading him in more time. But a third time, he says, you know, More and more Sexual behavior, you've escaped violence, you've escaped bad relationships, you've escaped dirty talk, you've escaped all kinds of things. So here you are years later having walked in the freedom of God and you find yourself venturing a little bit closer to the enemy's yard, making yourself liable to destruction. But God's always delivered you and He delivered you in this situation. So go a little further the next time. He delivered you in that situation. And the whole time because you've been drowning, you begin to feel invincible. Samson was utterly shocked when like I've done every other time before. And then the commentator said he was unaware that God had left him. Your sin will blind you to the fact that God's anointing is not on your life. You'll find yourself telling people that love you, that are pleading with you, please, brother, come back and live a wholesome life. You'll find yourself... I'm okay. You're okay. Okay. While you march off in a direction away from what I said. You know what I know? I know that men that I have loved in my life, people that I have discipled, as they were assuring me that I was concerned about nothing. They were still in love with God. Everything was fine. Now here I am in many cases 10, 15 years later 
They're still not serving God today. Their life is still bearing the negative fruit that I warned them that it would bear. And they still think they're okay. Samson had his eyes put out and his hands bound. You remember? The love? And a net around you. Samson found himself in that position, but thought he was okay until they put out his eyes. Now God, in one final act of mercy, saved Samson. But it cost him his very life. I want to be in that position, guys. You have callings. This is a serious thing. Don't treat the grace of God as a license for immorality. You need to be fearful. The same God that struck Ananias and Sapphira dead demands holiness of you today. Now you say, why on earth are you preaching this? You've got to make guests uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it's got to, got to make anybody in here uncomfortable. I'm not preaching this because any of you are here. I'm preaching this because I need to hear it every day. There's none of us that's immune. If your concept of your father is one that only puts lollipops in your mouth, one that only gives you good things, your concept of your father is bent out of shape. It's wrong. Hebrews 12 teaches us that if you are his son and you are not a bastard child, he will discipline you. That means you should be fearful of getting out of his will. David said, oh, that a righteous man would strike me. It would be like a kindness and oil on my head to keep my feet from straying out of the paths of God. That needs to be... I'm going to read one more thing. We're going to close. From where you... Well, I don't know where you all are. I... Page 13... Therefore, if you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, or an hour, you might think, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, our faith, who for the day set before Him and the cross, Mourning at shame and sat down on the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. You will not grow weary and ever admits to losing heart. Nobody ever admits to failing God. It's always the circumstance. But get your Perseverance. It requires endurance. You have to pursue righteousness. You have to fight temptation. And you have to contend like a heavyweight contender for the faith. You have to. It's not passive. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. All of you are still alive. None of you have struggled with sin to the point where you were eaten by a lion yet. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Is that because He's a cruel God? No, it's for your benefit. What if He had not been correcting and disciplining Paul? 
Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? Those were little areas of discipline in his life that got him on the track to be radically born again. He was in love with God and he was in covenant with God before that. But he was headed the wrong way and needed to teshuba. He needed to repent. And he did. And look at the fruit that it bore. Any Christian that claims to have never been entangled is a liar. I'm going to tell you that right up front. Anybody that looks at you and says, you struggle but I don't, is a liar and you need to run from them. I was in a marriage seminar one time and the couple that were teaching it said they had never had an argument. I wanted to get up and leave right then. If they had never had an argument, I couldn't relate to them. If they'd never had an argument, I questioned how much passion there really was there. Maybe they were indifferent to each other. All of us are made of the exact same stuff. Even Jesus was tempted in every way. Yet He was without sin because He fought the good fight. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. It's fun to read the uh, Greek there. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No one discipline, no discipline seems pleasant for the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Sometimes when you don't have peace in your life and in your home, it's because God is keeping peace in your life from your home, trying to get you to do His will. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. You notice, he doesn't say, ask God to strengthen you. It's kind of like the Bible doesn't say, ask God to humble you. He says, you strengthen your arms. You strengthen your knees. You've got the power of God revealed to you in the Word and His Spirit in you. What sin can you not overcome? If you put forth effort, what can you not do? There's not anything that you can't do. We act as if it's far away from us in heaven and can't be grasped. Or in the depths of the earth and you can't descend to it. Jesus has been to both places and made it available for you. Make every effort, requires effort, to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Can you imagine? The guy wanted lentils, beans, so much that he gave away the right to be in the lineage of Jesus. Doesn't that sound disgusting? And yet, we give up the presence of God in our life for a TV show? So that we don't look foolish when we're with some other people? so that we have a good time for an hour? Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You can get forgiveness, but you cannot always undo the consequences of sin. No matter how repentant Achan was, he could not bring back to life those 36 men that died because of what he did. 
You have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. We're going to close right here. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, how much less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from heaven? That was a warning out of the book of Hebrews written by somebody who had experienced what it was like for God to allow an entire nation to undergo discipline. And now he's calling Christians, Jewish Christians he was, but he's calling Christians to say, Hey guys, They blow the trumpet in Zion and Zion on the alarm on my holy mountain. Great is the army that carries out His word. There is a trumpet blast that is going forth, just like the one when they marched around Jericho. There's a trumpet blast going forth. I'm telling you, we are a great army if we carry out His word. But none of us has the right to do what we want instead of what God wants. And if we do, we become entangled in a net. I tell you this morning, free yourself from that net. Cling to Jesus. It is a great life. Otherwise, you'll be disciplined. And the sad truth is, when you don't respond to discipline, it eventually leads to death. In Israel, when a child would not be obedient, no matter what, brought before the elders, brought before everybody else, when he showed contempt and hatred for his parents, they stoned him. We think caning is cruel. I'd rather be stoned in Cain than to have missed God. And that was a harsh example in the natural that would benefit you today. Let's, while today is today, let's enjoin ourselves to God. Let's do everything that He's called us to do. You know, He really is awesome and this is an abundant life. And the little things that would ensnare you are not worth it. They're really not. Like Esau, who for a few moments of pleasure traded away his birthright, Afterwards, he was sorry, but it was too late. He had already done that. Not too late for us. All we have to do is make a wholehearted commitment to serve him. I make that commitment today, and I think you should too. Stand up and let's pray.